just want to thank you all for having me. Thank you all for uh, this church has become dear to me, if not only because of that first encounter, but uh, Pastor Evan, I was, uh, I leverage him and now he leverages me, so we have a good thing going. Uh, but I just want to say yes. And for those of you who won't meet my, my family, they'll be here for the next gathering. So, mm, okay. I just want to let you know. Um, if you have a Bible, meet me in Luke 16. And I believe I saw the passage in your bulletins 16 beginning with verse 19 I'm going to read it and then I'm going to ask for the Lord's help there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, um, we need you. We need you for everything, and therefore we need you for this moment, a moment where the matters of life and death are in full view. May your word, which is powerful, by your spirit, who is powerful, do work in our hearts for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Time. Time and eternity. A recent Pew Research poll let us know that 73% of, and I believe they were talking about American Christians, believe in heaven. 73% believe in heaven. 
62% of people believe in hell. Therefore, one in four Americans, they surmised, don't believe in heaven or hell. Now, in the words of Homer Simpson, you can use statistics to prove anything. 40% of all people know that. <laughs> but what this does is it reminds me that even for people who believe in, etern in eternity, most people would prefer to believe in heaven than to believe in hell. And many people don't believe in heaven or hell. And today what I would like to do is I would like to leverage this well-known parable or this well-known account in scripture to press upon us the need to take eternity seriously. And not only that, to understand the connection of time to that eternity. It reminds me of a pregnant woman who understands that nine months are significant months but only because they play a strategic role in what will be the ultimate purpose of living rightly during those nine months. And that is the life that will go on and on after those nine months. Pray that we will grasp the fact of eternity. For those of us that do not deny that there is life beyond this time, we need to grasp this concept of eternity. It's hard. I just, I like the picture that was painted of someone who said, imagine the Pacific Ocean, the largest body of water being drained of all of its water. Imagine the kind of hole that you would have in the ground. Then I want you to fill it with sand and let it go all the way up to Mount Everest, which is the highest uh, mountain that we have, Mount Everest. He says, whatever sand that is, then I, every 100 billion years, I want a bird to come and take one grain of sand and remove it. Now, by the time you empty that, 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 that crater, that, that, that hole, You've just experienced one second of eternity. I like that picture because eternity is even more. It's infinite. It's timeless. So may we understand this idea of, 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 of eternity, this ongoing reality that blows all of our categories. And this text brings these two together. Eternity is not just a place where you go on and on. Eternity is a whole different value system. Like the man who supposedly went to heaven. Now, you know this is an anecdote. It's one of those preachers. You know, it's like the story I heard. Uh, and the man gets to heaven and he says, hey, how much is a minute worth? They said, oh, a minute is worth a million years here. He says, oh, wow. Well, then how much is a dollar worth? He said, oh, a dollar is like a, 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 a million Dollars. He said, wow, man, well, can I just have $5? He said, yeah, in like five minutes. <laughs> the idea is that there's a value system difference that we don't understand, and there's a time difference that we don't understand yet. We need to understand both because the key to this life is understanding that this life is just prep work for the life that is to come. And our text brings that clear. So we're going to see the contrast of two lives, the contrast of two eternities, the contrast of two lives, and the contrast of two eternities, and then some takeaways from both. The text introduces us to a rich man. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
Okay, this is a parable, so it doesn't give a name. It normally just uses a random person, a random example, a paradigm of the prosperous person, just a random rich man. The parable starts off by letting you know not just that he was rich, but how rich. We're not supposed to speculate. I wonder how he got his riches. I wonder if he got it illegally. I wonder if he's doing things that are not right with his riches. That's not what the text focuses you on. It wants you to focus on a rich man. A rich man who's very, very rich. He has what most people would desire. He has what most people would esteem. He has what even most in this room may say I would prefer and he has it abundantly. The text says he's clothed in purple, which comes from a dye that was so expensive that most people would just have, again, a small thread of purple, and that would be considered expensive. He has it in such a way that the whole robe and his outfit, his wardrobe is, is described as being purple. He's clothed also in fine linen. Though this sort of refers to some undergarments. There was this rapper, uh, not that I, you know, listened to him, but uh, the rapper once said that he was Gucci down to the socks. That was a way of boasting. That, that, that was a way of boasting. Uh, and so uh, this, this is what he's saying. He's saying not only was his robe plush, but his underwear, his undergarments were, he has money to blow. He's not just rich, he's uber rich. He's filthy rich, as we would say. And not only did he dress good, he ate good. That's a saying today. You'll see athletes talking about, I'm eating or feed me, right? That's a saying today. I'm eating. I'm eating well. It says he feasted sumptuously. It's a word that means that he didn't just have a quick bite to eat. He partied. He lived in luxury. It says every day. Again, some people would party every now and then. Uh, his menu would be what some people would experience in a lifetime. This is his daily routine. Michelin chefs. Oh, he has people that are working because he eats so well, he needs servants to prepare it. He has the celebrities and the who's who because when you throw a party and when you have the party, people come because they're party people and we, they all get together. This man, he eats sumptuously. The picture, the Lord Jesus, master picture painter, wants you to know that we're dealing with a rich man who lives well, who eats well, who has everything that most people would covet and and desire. Verse 20 says, and at his gate. So he lived in a gated community. You know what it's like for us to see, oh, you're in a gated community. Okay, this is a step up, right? Because now everything that you have is protected in a little world that is your own. Well, fine linen, fine wine, fine women, friends, fans. This one has what most people would call the good life. Now, earlier, couple chapters up, the Lord Jesus talked about the Pharisees. He says that they love money, and he had to rebuke them because he told them what you esteem, what man esteems is an abomination to God. In other words, we do get a little insight that this good life probably has a, a caveat attached to it. And exactly, because this is a certain life that they would have thought was the blessed life. And truthfully, many of us think that this is the description of the blessed life. But it's in contrast to this next life, 
we meet a man named Lazarus. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So what we meet is the first man's antithesis. He's not in the party. <laughs> He's outside of the party. He's not a participant in this luxury. He's outside the gate. He's shut out from the luxury. He's not called a rich man, a certain rich man. He's described as a poor man. He doesn't eat sumptuously daily. For him, it's not feast. His life will be described as famine. Since he longs to just eat the scraps. You know how we do when somebody is finished and their meal look better than yours. You'll say something like, you going to eat that? <clears throat> Every now and then at a restaurant, someone will take a plate to the back and I'm looking at my meal and I'll look at the, the scraps that are going like, sure, it would be nice to have what they had. Well, he's looking, saying, if I could just have the scraps that they throw out. He's not surrounded by the adoring crowds, the people who come to party. It says, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And these are scavengers. These are not the cute dogs like everyone likes and has in a purse. These are the dogs you wouldn't want. But you're like, scram, get out of here. And those are the only people that are surrounding this one. Jesus, the master picture painter, lets you know that this is the contrast of two lives. And yet in their time, in the context, and in our times, in our culture, one would think that this is a, a life that's marked by God's displeasure. And the first guy has a life that's marked by God's pleasure. But there's another contrast that we ought to appreciate as this plane begins to take off. This man is named Lazarus. In most parables, you don't get a name. The reason why we get a name of this character is because his name is significant to give us context and to give us insight. Lazarus, related to the name Eleazar, which means the one whom God helps. <laughs> How ironic that the one who looks unhelped, that needs people to help him by laying him at a gate so he can hope for scraps, is the one that's given the name, the one whom God helps. The one who does not have what the first man has, but lacks all the things that the first man has, is the one that's called the one whom God helps. The one whom the dogs seem to help because they lick his sores. And the notion is that he's either too weak or he's too hungry in order to even scratch his own sores. But the dogs give him help. Yet this is the one that the text refers to as him whom God helps. <laughs> Church, I just wanted to come by and say, I don't know what you're going through. But if you're in Christ, and your circumstances, whether they're favorable or if you desire them to change, you have something going for you. You have the one who helps people such as yourself. He helps the beggar. He helps the blind. He helps the poor. And your circumstances don't negate that. Well, we look, verse 22, the great equalizer of these contrasting lives shows up in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the, Ab the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
So here we see a moment of unity between these two, a moment of sameness between these two. The poor man died, the Bible says, the rich man died. The sick man died, the healthy man died. The friendless man died, and the one who had all the friends in the world died. Death, the great unifier. This is what Romans does. Romans tells us, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, therefore be unified in your need of a savior. You die, you die, therefore you're unified in the reality that it's appointed for all once to die and then the judgment. The text then lets you know, but there's still some differences even in death. For one man has died, it says nothing about a burial. And it says nothing about a funeral. Probably they threw the man who they threw at the gate. They probably threw him on the trash heap because, again, he's nobody in particular. And yet the rich man, it says, and was buried. No doubt he was eulogized. No doubt he was, again, they came to see who he left, things to from his will. No doubt he was probably mourned by those who missed their sugar daddy. <laughs> no doubt his corpse was treated with respect. Let me just say right now, the text right now does not give us this information to make us believe that being rich or having money is a crime. The text equally is, wants us to know that being poor or not having much is not a curse. Richness is not always a sign of God's favor. Poorness is not always a sign of God's displeasure. But the Bible would say, and this is just a slight digression to a theology of wealth, the Bible would say that God often has people who don't have much in this life who are primed to be open to what he has for them for the life to come. James chapter 2 verse 5, if you're note takers, listen my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God which he promised to those who love him? And the text would say though it's not a crime to have riches, the Bible would say that it often can be a snare. 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Jesus would go on to say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for people who have a lot, people who are a lot, to enter into the kingdom of God. And therefore, what we want to do is we want to encourage you today to think well about your wealth. Contentment is the key. Whether I'm Lazarus or I'm rich man, whether I'm Lazarus or I am rich woman, in the words of 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. In the words of Philippians chapter 4, I have learned the secret of life. I know how to abase and I know how to abound. What we ought to do is we ought to pray, God, teach me how to thrive in season, out of season, in times of richness, in times of recession, <laughs> during prosperity, during a pandemic, <laughs> when the economy is roaring or when inflation is soaring. Either way, Lord God, keep me stable in you. <laughs> well, that's the contrast of two men or two lives. But the text gives us a contrast in two eternities. 
After they die, it says the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This is a theological principle that eternity will not just reveal new truths, but it will also reveal a great reversal. <laughs> The great reversal, the one who was carried and laid at the gates is now said to be carried by the angels to Abraham's side. There is no greater party center, head of the table outside of Jesus himself in the Jewish culture and Jewish mind than to sit at the table with Abraham. The one who had no favor with the big shots in the palace now is the guest of honor right next to Father Abraham. The one who looked like he was winning now wakes up and realizes that he's lost. The one who looks like he was losing now gets up and he's winning. The text is clear. The one who was shut out from the tables on earth now sits as the guest of honor in the tables in heaven. The text says, now we see truly Lazarus was the one whom God has helped. The rich man. The rich man begins to do what he does. The same thing he did on earth, he begins to do in time, he does in eternity. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish. Abraham says, child, remember, you had your good swapped. <laughs> Caveat. We don't want to overthink these parables. But there's something interesting here. One man wakes up in Hades, a text that's always, or a term that's always set in contrast to heaven. Psalm 139.8, if I ascend to heaven, if I make my bed in Sheol, that's, that's, that's putting these two at uh, uh, odds with one another or in contrast to one another. Amos 9, 2, for you note takers. If they dig into Sheol, from there they shall, uh, there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. These are separated Notice that in eternity, the one who wakes up in Hades, distant from the, the seats of honor in heaven, is conscious. We teach a consciousness when you leave this life. You don't just vanish. You don't just blink. You wake up and you're conscious, more conscious than you ever have been. It says he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and, and, and Lazarus at his side. It's as though he is aware of his surroundings. He's aware. He understands a connection between the Lazarus of the life before and the Lazarus in his life now. The Abraham that he heard about before and the Abraham that he's now seeing He's aware he's not with Abraham. He's aware that he's no longer at the party. He's aware that Lazarus now seems to have an enviable position. In time, the rich man had it all. In eternity, he lost it all. In time, the rich man was part of the in crowd. In eternity, this man was on the outs of the kingdom, on the outs of the presence of the Lord, on the outs of communion and companionship. This is why Luke chapter 13, 27 to 28, this is how Jesus describes the rejection of people who reject him. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. He's conscious in hell. This man is even religious in hell. 
He calls him Father Abraham, which is a way of related to him. He probably was, he represents the Jews. He represents part of that, that, that commonwealth that you would, you would envy, part of the covenant people. And yet he says he appeals to his heritage. You know, he appeals to his, his insiderness with Abraham. Abraham even calls him child, child. <laughs> yet he's in Hades, newsflash. Religious people go to hell. The Bishop J.C. Ryle said it this way, the saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. Good people go to hell. Pretty girls go to hell. Pastors and prophets go to hell. Preachers' kids go to hell. Churchgoers and moral people go to hell. Philanthropists, vegans and recyclers go to hell. <laughs> only those beggars, only those who see themselves as poor, poor in spirit, only those who do the mourning now, blessed are those who mourn. Who have the help of the God who saves. Are saved from an eternity, cast out from the king. He's conscious, he's religious, and he's unchanged. He basically treats Lazarus in eternity like he treated him in time. Like he would be an errand boy. Like the only thing he was worthy of was to be sent to do his bidding. <laughs> and what Abraham says is you had your heaven. <laughs> now welcome to Hades. And he had his hell. <laughs> and now he's in heaven. There's a saying for you, Christian, if the Lord Jesus has saved you, this is the only hell you'll ever know. And yet for some, this is the only heaven they will ever know. Lastly, it's fixed and it's final. Verse 26 says, and besides all this, between us and between you is a great chasm in order that there is no swapping and there is no switching. <laughs> in eternity, those who are not in Christ will be permanently fixed outside of the grace and the graces of our Lord and the glories thereof. Hell is banishment from God's fellowship table. That's the picture. It's banishment from God's kindness. Right now, the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust, meaning that good things happen to bad people. This will be the time when no more good happens to people who are on the outside. This is the tragic and heartbreaking reality that we preach to you today. That if you will have no Christ in time, you will have no Christ in eternity. Then if you will not be drawn by the grace of God in time, you will be outcasted from that grace in eternity. We tell you of a hell, a real hell, even as we tell you of a real heaven. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said, if sinners be damned, at least tell them 
leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for this morning. Allow me to warn you. Allow me to proclaim to you that there is a glorious option and it is life with the God who helps. The Lord Jesus Christ, who himself was treated much like Lazarus, who himself looked like God had abandoned rather than God was his friend. The Bible says that the father crushed him. The Bible says that he looked like one who was smitten of God. The Bible says that when they looked at him, they didn't recognize him as one who was in the favorite position. For cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And yet this one is the key to you sitting at the table, exalted and glorious, with pleasures forevermore. If you will not have Christ in time, you will not have him in eternally. The dialogue goes on, and so we start moving into some, some more understandings about time and eternity. 27, I beg you, then send them to my father's house. The reality of life without Christ is nothing to desire, nothing to have, and the gravity of dying without Christ will become apparent. You will not want it for anyone. Well, if he can't be a water boy, at least go let him be a preacher boy. He says, send him. I got brothers. I got family. Tell my family, don't come here. And then you see what the rich man's problem was. It wasn't his riches. It was that he was his own God. Even now, it's about himself. It's about what people do for him. It's about, again, now some have noticed that, yes, and it's also about his callousness toward the poor, his callousness toward the weak, his callousness toward those who are less fortunate. And yes, that usually in the Bible is indicative of the fact that you have not seen yourself as the needy. You have not seen yourself as the graced. You have not seen yourself rightly. Therefore, you do not see others rightly. So the man's problem is selfism. It's about him. But there's also something we see all so the importance of the scriptures when it comes to time and eternity. Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. I'm not sending Lazarus. They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the scriptures. Here again, we see the importance of scriptures. Luke's the gospel that's going to tell you that Genesis to Revelation is about the Lord Jesus. And right now we want to open up the scriptures regularly because it's here that we understand how we live in time in such a way that we are prepared for the life to come. Answers about life and death, about time and eternity are in the scriptures. Moses, the prophets, which is just a shorthand for the word of God, the Bible. He says, let them hear them. May every preacher who stands behind this sacred desk only be people who allow people to hear them, the word of truth. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Even your Christ needs to be aligned with the scriptures. His death and your account of it should be aligned with the scriptures. The fact that it is for sinners and not just as a moral example, we get that from the scriptures. <laughs> they have the scriptures, let them come to church and actually listen. <laughs> they have the scriptures, let them stop and hear the street preacher and actually listen. Verse 30. No, Father Abraham, your theology is off. <laughs> Allow me to correct you. If somebody raises from the dead... <laughs> 
I mean, we sat in Bible studies all our lives. I'm saying if somebody comes back from the dead, in other words, give them a show. Give them something spectacular. Blow their minds. A resurrection will do it. Oh, there's another man named Lazarus in the Bible. Lazarus, come forth, John chapter 11. And he did come. He said, some believe, and it said, but the others told the Pharisees and they plotted to kill him. Even if someone raises from the dead, Abraham says, that doesn't bring about belief. We know the Lord Jesus did raise from the dead and many still do not believe. So let me land this plane. Time and eternity. As sure as there is time, you can believe there is eternity. There is what the Bible calls this life and the life to come. It says that working out is good for this life, but godliness is good for this life and the life to come. Surely as there is an earth, there is a heaven. <laughs> And as surely as there is a heaven, there is a hell, a place separated, permanently fixed from the God who made heaven and earth too. What you do in time will affect you for all eternity. Live in time in light of eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.10, jot it down. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Luke chapter 16.9, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The great reformer Martin Luther used to say, I got two days on my calendar, today and that day. Live today in light of that day. Three, eternity confirms you. It will not conform you. <laughs> Again, eternity will confirm that you are who we thought you were. <laughs> it will not change you. Notice he didn't say, I'm sorry. Lazarus, I'm sorry. I slept on you. Silly me. No. He's confirmed to be who he was. Verse 4, one's relationship to God in time determines one's relationship to God in eternity. Is he your help now? Is he your source now? Is he your king now? Is he your all in all now? That's a prerequisite to you having him like that for all of eternity. This is why the Bible says... Woe to people who have it all now without my help. Woe to people who have it all now without me as Lord. Five, true wealth and true winners are not revealed in time, but are only determined by eternity. We have a statement, time will tell. That's only partly true. Eternity will tell more. Who's winning? It's a song, all I do is win, 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 no matter what. Eternity will tell. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Money, fame, name, race, accolades, all these things, when we esteem them to the place of ultimate significance, God says, not me, that's not me. 
Let me hasten. I just wanted to stop by and hope that we would begin to navigate our life in light of what God has revealed. Lemuel Haynes, at the end of his life, I'm sure the Presbyterian Church, you've heard of a Lemuel Haynes. You all seem to be up on your diverse understandings of the Christian faith. Lemuel Haynes is considered one of the first black Puritans. <laughs> he was one of the first to pastor an all-white church as an ordained minister in America. And he gets to the end of his life, and he says, I've been examining myself and looking back upon my past life, but I can find nothing in myself and nothing in all my past services to recommend me at the bar of Yahweh or Jehovah. Christ is my all. His blood is my only hope of acceptance. My pains are great, but blessed be God, they are not eternal. I long to be in heaven. I'll give you another one. The first black to record, uh, black, a poet to publish in America, Jupiter Hammond. Listen to how he is, and I'll conclude with this. He was talking to some people, some Negroes. He was, he was, he was addressing Negroes back in, again, some, in somewhere in the 1800s, and this is what he says. My dear brethren, we are many of, there are many of us that are seeking for a temporal freedom, and I pray God would grant your desire. <laughs> That's key. Because, you know, some people say, well, don't worry about it. <laughs> no, I pray you can get it. <laughs> he says, if we are slaves, it is by the permission of God. If we are free, it must be by the power of the Most High God. Be not discouraged, but cheerfully perform the duties of the day, sensible that the same power that creates and sustains the universe can cause a universal freedom. And I pray God may give you grace to seek that freedom which tendeth to eternal life. That's what I come saying today from our text. Time, eternity. May you live today in light of what's to come. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, help us. Help us to treat the life that's coming as though it's significant enough to affect the life we're now living. If there's anyone in here that doesn't know the Lord Jesus, may the Lord Jesus appeal to them. And may the fact that he went on the cross for their sins and offers his righteousness in exchange for their unrighteousness and offers his riches to replace their poverty. May that draw someone. And if not that, may the horrors of living life without him be another compelling element to bring people to you today. We pray it in Jesus' name.